Our reading tonight is John chapter 3, verse 16 through 21. Let us pray. Our most gracious God, we ask for your help. On the occasion of your word being read publicly and preached, we ask, O gracious Lord, that you would open your hand to us and give to us all that is needed to believe your word, recognizing herein your authority and taking shelter behind it as a shield, as a castle, as a great wall, as a bulwark. Lord, we pray that we would not dispute with it, but under the care of your spirit, yield and meekly receive it, firmly implanted. Lord, help us, we pray. Unless you do, O Lord, we cannot be helped. We ask for this by the merits of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our great high priest at your right hand. In his name, amen. John, John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. This is God's word. What message does the Church of Jesus Christ have for the world today? To make this even more personal, what message does this particular congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church have for the world today? To make it even more personal, what message do you have for men and women around you who live where you live during the very years that you are alive? What is your message to them, even to the people living under your same roof? You see, if you are a Christian, you have a message for the world. What is it? What is that message? If your message changes from one thing for people living in a democracy to another thing for people living in a monarchy, then your message is not God's message. If your message changes from one thing for people living in America to another thing for people living in Saudi Arabia, then your message is not God's message. If your message changes from one thing for people living very bad lives to another thing for people living very good lives, then your message is not God's message. You see, God's message to the world is not 
about the best way to run government. God's great message is the same for people living in democracy or under monarchy. And God's message is not about creating the most honorable culture. God's great message is the same for people living in socially loose America and socially strict Japan. And God's great message to the world is not even about building better men or building better marriages or building better workers. God's great message is not a message about moral improvement using a few techniques found in the Bible. God's message to the world, our message to the world, is the message of God's love in Jesus Christ. The eternal God became man and was put to death for my sins, for your sins, for the sins of all who believe and all who will believe. If it has never been clear to us, John 3.16 and John 3.17 make it clear to us. God's final word to us in his son is not a word of condemnation, but a word of salvation. God so loved the world, he gave his son to save the world from perishing. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it, because the world is already condemned. This is our message to the world. God's love is found in Jesus Christ, crucified for sins. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In John 12, 47, our Lord says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. What is your great message to the world? What is your great message for your children? What is your great message for the man you work with? For your neighbor across the street? What What do people think that you are all about What's the message leaking from your pores? Your friends know. Your family knows. What's your message? Are you big on the mercies of God in Christ? Or are you big on something else? We sometimes find that the message we really want to bring to the world is a message about politics. Or a message about cultural renewal. Or a message about moral improvement. And yes, it is true the Christian has something to say about those things. But have we made the effort to learn how to say it in such a way that we do not diminish the saving work of Jesus Christ? Or do we accidentally teach people that salvation from their political sins, from their cultural sins, their moral sins, that salvation from those is found in better politics, higher culture, cleaner living, a Christless Christianity. 
You see, those messages seem urgent and necessary to us, but it is easy to bring those messages to the world just like someone else who might bring those same messages, someone who does not acknowledge the necessity of Christ and him crucified. The challenge for each of us every day is this. What message do I really want to hear myself? Is the message of God's love for sinners in Christ crucified the best news I could hear on any day? Is it the great message I, in fact, rehearse in my own mind? The message that I feed on, live on, delight in? Or am I more than a little bored with it? So I am now living in and off a different message, a message that allows me to prove to myself that I am much better than other men. The reason John 3.16 and 3.17 are connected in John 3 to the conversation between Jesus and the Pharisee Nicodemus is because Nicodemus had kept this chief message of God He has kept it far from his mind because he is a Pharisee. If Nicodemus was like most of the Pharisees, he was a man who counted people's trespasses and remembered those trespasses and recorded those trespasses and held those trespasses against the trespassers. In Matthew 9, the Pharisees scolded our Lord for eating with tax collectors and sinners Jesus said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees were in fact so trigger happy to count people's sins against them, they often condemned people who were innocent. Matthew 12, 7, the Pharisees had falsely accused the disciples of Jesus of violating God's Sabbath laws. But Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. What a ministry they had, a ministry of condemnation. Beloved, that is why John 3, 16 and 17 is located where it is. John 3, 16 and 17 is the perfect message to counter our own pharisaical self-righteousness. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world from the wrath of his judgment. To have this message in our own ears and on our own hearts will preserve us from the ministry malpractice of condemnation. God's message to the world is the message of his love through Christ crucified for sinners. What is your great message? Now, if we are hearing this right, we ourselves will be both astonished and disturbed. We will be astonished by the revelation that God loves the world at all. 
astonished once we realize what the world is. And we will be disturbed by the revelation that God's love does not move everyone to come out of the cold shadows of sin and guilt and idolatry into the pure, warm light of Jesus Christ. First, let's consider the astonishing revelation that God loves the world at all. When Jesus says God so loved the world, we must understand world as he himself understood it and understands it. It's my present tense repair. In John 1.10, the world is that mass of humanity who cannot recognize its own creator. In John 7.7, the world is that mass of humanity who hates Jesus for his testimony, that we are so desperately evil, our only hope is an otherworldly savior. In John 8.12, the world is a place of such profound darkness, the only way to come out of it is through Jesus. In John 12.31, the world is under divine judgment because of its sin, and it is under the rule of Satan because of its blindness. Yet remarkably, in John 15, 19, on the night of his arrest, Jesus tells his disciples, I chose you out of the world. And in John 17, 6, he says, my father chose you out of the world. The people whom God sets his love upon do not come from some parallel universe where there is no rebellion. No darkness, no hatred, no sin. No, the people God takes into his love are from this corrupt world. A mass of rebellious humanity that is only fit for perishing. That's why the word is in our text. So the revelation that God loves the world, it should be astonishing to us. God sets his love upon men and women who have been actively opposed to him. Men and women who, as verse 18 says, were already living under a sentence of condemnation. Listen to how the Apostle Paul says it. Romans 5, 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sometime we will see a man, sometimes, we will see a man sacrifice his life for his friends. People he believes are good and full of righteous potential. A soldier might jump on a grenade to save his band of brothers. But where do we see a man lay down his life for the wretched opposition? We see it in Jesus Christ. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Are you astonished? Are you astonished by the message of God's love in Christ for the world? If you are not, it is because you think people are better than God says they are. You think it's almost a small thing that God would love the world, almost like he's obligated to. You should be astonished, beloved. A hundred years ago, Scottish theologian P.T. Forsyth sarcastically said, we have churches of the nicest, kindest people who have nothing apostolic or missionary about them. 
who never knew the soul's despair or its breathless gratitude. What a far cry that is from the Apostle Paul, who said, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Romans 7, 24. Can you imagine your pastor always talking like that when new people come to church? Can you imagine your mother talking like that to the neighbors, your father, your brother, your sister? Paul had both apostolic clarity and missionary zeal for the great need of the world because he had the answer to the soul's most bitter question. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you think you are a pretty decent person, and if you think God was going to love anybody, he would surely love someone kind of like you, you are deceived about the depth and darkness of the world that God has set love upon. Study your life next to the life of Jesus Christ. Then you may begin to see who you really are. His life is exposited perfectly in the law of God and in the Gospels and in the prophets and in the apostles. Set your life next to his own. In Shakespeare's play, Othello, the character Iago said of Cassio, he hath a daily beauty in his life that makes me ugly. Take up the scriptures and spend time in the presence of Jesus Christ and you may come, you may come to judge yourself rightly as taken out of the world that was full of enmity, darkness, corruption, and vileness and is still. But you will be humbled much more than Iago was by Cassio when you see Jesus Christ. But God's love is not only astonishing, it is also disturbing. It is disturbing because, as we see in our text tonight, the love of God does not bring all men out of the world to faith in Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his son, but not all the world will be saved through him. Look at verse 19. There are many whose love for the darkness is not broken by the message of God's love. They want to continue their evil works. Verse 19 says, so they reject the light of Christ. Has God's love for the world then failed because some men are not saved? Has God's love for the world failed because many still cling to their evil works and are sent to the eternal fires of hell? Is this a failure of John 3.16? When the scriptures say God loved the world, it is not teaching that all men will be in heaven. It is not teaching that the benefits of Christ's atoning blood apply to all men without exception. That view is called universal atonement. The Bible does not teach it. Jesus himself said, enter by the narrow gate, 
For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Matthew 7. When the scriptures say that God loved the world, it is saying God loved all humanity without distinction, hardened sinners from every social class, hardened sinners from both genders, hardened sinners from every ethnicity, hardened sinners from among Jews and Gentiles, hardened sinners, free men and slave. God has set his mighty love on transgressors of every sort. So it is wrong to say God loves the world without exception. Universal atonement is an error. It is wrong to say it, unless, of course, we are speaking of God's benevolent love, that love of God which grants even the wicked to live, to grow up, to marry, to have children, to make bread. God's benevolent love is for all people without exception. But if we are talking about God's saving love, we must then say God's love is without distinction, not without exception. Many will die in their sins, and they will go to hell. And that is not because God's love has failed. For God's saving love always succeeds. Now, there are some who would like to teach that God's love made it possible for all men to be saved, but did not make it certain that any would be saved. This is called the general atonement. This is different from universal atonement, but it is not much better. The general atonement view says God's love puts salvation within reach of every sinner, but man must decide if he will take it. Atonement is possible for all, but certain for none. In this general atonement scenario, man's will is the ultimate factor that determines if man will be saved or not. And this has been crudely expressed by some general atonement preachers in this way. God has cast a vote for you. The devil has cast a vote against you. It is your job. It's up to you to break the tie. Scripture does not teach such a thing. Does not teach general atonement. The scriptures teach a definite atonement, or what some have called particular atonement, or what some have called limited atonement. This is the teaching of scripture. God's love for sinners through Christ makes it certain that some will be saved out of the world. Who are the some that will certainly be saved? The Bible calls them the elect of God, people who just like the rest of the world were once dead in their sins, but they are those whom God chose out of the world, those whom Jesus said of his Father, he gave them to me out of the world, John seventeen six. The love of God will definitely succeed in placing all the benefits of Christ crucified on those whom God has chosen out of the world for salvation. But God will not do this without the faith of the sinner. But where does even that faith come from? It comes from God, who works faith into the sinner whom he has chosen. He works that faith 
into the sinner for whom he gave his son to die before the foundation of the world. As Jesus says in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. The Lord goes to work and makes a man, makes a woman, makes a boy, makes a girl willing and able to come to Christ. It's a work of God, even the faith that God must see, must give. The ancient church father, Augustine, describes the drawing work of this divine love in his own soul. When he was still a man who hated the light, who would not come to the light, a grown man, Augustine said, there sang all around me and in my ears a cauldron of unholy loves. But one day Jesus crossed the path of the great Augustine. Jesus shone the light of God's love into his soul on that day. Augustine discovered two things at once. He discovered that in Christ, there is no condemnation. And he discovered that because of this unconquerable divine love for sinners, there was no reason to hide his sin any longer. It was time to come into the light. It was time to live for righteousness under the forgiving love of God in Christ. Augustine expresses it this way in his book, The Confessions. You took me from behind my own back, where I put myself all the time that I preferred not to see myself, and you set me there before my face that I might see how vile I was. I saw myself, and I was horrified. But a few moments later, as he has picked up the pick, as he has taken up the Bible and read it, reading it through tears, Augustine comes to faith and he writes, I had no wish to read further, no need, for in that instant, with the very ending of the sentence, it was as though a light of utter confidence shone in all my heart and all the darkness of uncertainty vanished away. God so loved the world that he breaks the sinner's love of darkness by overwhelming the sinner with God's love through the gift of his son. And the sinner comes into the light. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Augustine and every Christian whom the Lord has worked saving faith in is no longer afraid of the light because we have heard the sweet sound that Christ has been sent into the world not to condemn sinners but to love them everlastingly and to make them new and to make them walk upright and holy in the light the light of Christ and his righteousness, the light of Christ and his love, the light of Christ and his forgiveness. 
So Augustine and every Christian in whom the Spirit has worked this saving faith is no longer needing to hide who they really are because they know that in the light, that light being the light of the sun of God's love, S-O-N, they know there is no condemnation and there is the warm, cleansing, purifying light that brings them into newness of life. As we come to the Lord's Supper then, we should understand that even in our coming to the Supper tonight, we are doing the very thing described or had done, you come out of that darkness again and you come to this body and blood and the Lord Jesus says, no condemnation for all who are in me. And he would have you be persuaded that he does not keep record of your sins like some Pharisee. He has erased them and he has taken them to the bottom of the sea to the depths of the earth in his own judicial death. He has brought you through the full payment of wages for those sins by his own death and resurrection, and they do not follow you. And he would have that love be the strength of your holiness of life. And so he is zealous to testify to you again through this ordinance, not a converting, or, converting ordinance, but an encouraging ordinance, that you are at peace with this eternal judge, and he has loved you unto death.